But today it is VE Day. The boys the over the Queen waves from the belt. Eagle has landed. Apollo 11 has landed. tearing down the Berlin Wall. Since 1929, the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth. Cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth. The World Wide Web. Wall Street is in turmoil as stocks crash. The Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Capital at risk. Hello, my name is Christopher Johnson, reporter at CityWire Wealth Manager. In today's episode, I speak to CityWire Plus rated James Sim of River Mercantile, an expert in European equities who runs the £141.9 million ES River Mercantile European Fund and the £61.2 million River Mercantile European Change for Better Fund. In this discussion, we talk about why he is bullish on Europe, why valuations of European equities are so cheap, and his investments in clean technology companies. Really interested to get your perspective on kind of European equities and what the state of play is. So is now the time to dive in? What What do you think? Yeah, I'm, I'm really constructive, actually, um, on the market. We're, valuations are, are at kind of an all-time record discount um, to the rest of the world, um, by which we mean the US. Obviously, they're not like absolutely the cheapest that they've ever been, but certainly relative they are. And in absolute terms, they're, they're pretty cheap. Um, you know, high single digit uh, earnings yield, high single digit free cash flow yields. So if you can grow from that point in earnings terms, that's normally a really good kind of like medium term entry point because you get the free cash flow yield, but you obviously also get the earnings, earnings grow through time. And I think there's some really good reasons to think we can grow. And actually probably... Contrary maybe to what the market's pricing in, I think we can sort of close the growth gap, if you like, in Europe relative to um, the US and, and and the rest of the world. And and kind of why is that? And I suppose it, it kind of rests on three pillars. So the first one is that um, we're in a much more fiscally stimulative world, aren't we? Um, you know, even even uh, the Conservative Party in the UK has, has, has uh, got with the program in terms of no more austerity. And austerity has been a big part of why there's been this kind of lower for longer European malaise. It's totally over post-COVID. Um, and, and and that um, is very important for Europe because governments are 50% of our GDP. So it's very hard for Europe to grow domestically if governments are shrinking. A much bigger part of our GDP in Europe than they are, say, in the US. So this new kind of found fiscally, less profligate, fiscally stimulative um, catch up demand, you know, depending on your political point of view. The fact of the matter is it's, it's good for Europe in terms of, of, of growth. So that'd be my first point. The, the second point is simply recovery. Um, and for the consumer in particular, I think there's a quite decent catch up um, in terms of demand. We all know, you know, we ended up in a very strong position in terms of disposable income in, in Europe and across the world, really, from the, the COVID stimulus. You know, people sat at home, didn't have much to spend their money on. We're getting all the kind of um, uh, lockdown payments and so on and so forth. So that was obviously a very good period. And we saw that we saw very strong equity returns through that period. And then more recently, we've had a much more difficult period, right? Where real wage growth has been under pressure, cost of living crisis. So I guess my second building block would be that that cost of living crisis is about to ease. And by the end of the year, certainly, you know, early next year, you will start to see real wage growth. 
because we've had settlements of maybe five, seven, even 10% in some countries, you know, the German minimum wage is up double digit. So it's a lagging effect, basically, whereas inflation is obviously starting to fall and actually outside, you know, the UK today has had some promising data. Outside the UK, it's come down very quickly, even more quickly, um, US most quickly, and then Europe. So we're moving into a period where we're going to have much better end demand. So these are the building blocks of an economy, right? Governments, consumers, and, and corporates. And I think finally on the corporate side, we're seeing much higher capex, much higher capital investment um, going forward than we've seen in the past. And that's really for two reasons. One is that we there's a catch-up demand. So previously, uh, corporates didn't spend much in the lower for longer period. We can go into all the reasons for that. Um, but um, the other reason is obviously decarbonization. And that is really touching every sector and every area. And it's an enormous spend to get there. And obviously, Europe is good at green tech. You know, we've taken it seriously for longer than other parts of the world. We've got the world leaders in many areas. And I would almost go so far to say, as if green tech is to Europe, what big tech was to the US in the last cycle. And clearly, if you'd have identified that early on, uh, you saw, you know, outsized returns from that the, the US market. Now, I'm not saying we're going to have quite the same phenomenon, but it was going to be a much fairer fight. Let's put it like that. So I think for those reasons, you can be quite confident that over the medium term, you're going to see decent earnings growth from Europe, certainly in nominal terms, if we're living in a higher inflationary period. And starting on these like low absolute and extremely low relative valuations, that should be a really good um, catalyst or really good entry point, really good um, you know, medium-term returns from, from the market. Um, and of course, we're coming from a position where lots of people are very underweight the region. So that's another kind of brick in the wall, if you like. So I think there's quite a few reasons to be pretty constructive on Europe. James, uh, why are European equities so cheap? Uh, I ask that because when I speak to UK equity fund managers, they talk about the cheapness of the UK because of all of these particular reasons, how it's so unloved and so forth. So what's going on in Europe to mean that valuations are depressed? I think there's a few reasons, isn't there? One is, you know, it's been a tough period for the consumer. Um, we've got a relatively industrial market in, in Europe and, um, you know, the, the slowdown in China has hit there. Um, I think there's a quite a big technical effect. In fact, I'd probably say that's the most important single reason. And that is that because obviously everybody has moved more passive and more global, what that's really meant is they've gravitated towards the US. So the US has seen pretty consistent inflows. And, you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, when I started in this job, really share prices were set by fundamental investors like me you know, having a different opinion from each other and and, and, and and the buying and selling decision, the various analysis we were doing was setting the clearing price for those companies. And that doesn't, that, that's not really what sets the, the margin. That's not where the marginal buy and the marginal seller is at, anymore. It's really in the wall of passive money. And eventually that, of course, unwinds. And, and, and you know, the great saying that in the long run, the stock market is a, is a weighing machine is absolutely true. And it will come to pass. But when you have this very strong AI phenomenon, uh, the Magnificent Seven or the Fangs or whatever you want to call them today, but it's the same smallish cohort group of companies that are responsible for all the equity returns, all the equity outperformance of the US, actually, 
that sucks in all this capital from the passive money because they have to buy the stocks as they go up. It's effectively it's a pro-momentum phenomenon. And I think that has been really important in creating this you know, valuation-driven medium-term opportunity to make outsized returns in Europe. You mentioned clean technology. And I was quite interested in Air Liquid, I think it's now. Yeah, Air well, um, Liquid, if you want to. There we go. Um, it's the top holding of your Better for Change fund. Could you talk to me yeah. about why you're you're bullish in the stock? What and what do you like about it? Yeah, yeah. So Elikid is a very um, defensive business. Um, it's a reasonably well-run business um, in 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 a very good market. So you've got Elikid, Linda, and and other you know players. But it's basically an oligopoly. It's an oligopoly. But once Elikid or one of these industrial gas businesses get into a customer, effectively it becomes a monopoly because they build a pipe to their customer's facility uh, often, you know, if it's an industrial facility. Sometimes it's it's taking cylinders, but they have these long-term off-tape contracts of providing industrial gas to, um, you know, hospitals, uh, you know, obviously use a lot of oxygen, for example, and could be schools, could be universities, but industrial is is, is the big area. And because there's a pipe that goes directly there, you can imagine the pricing power that that company has. It's not like they're going to build another pipe next door to another provider. So, so and that's reflected in contracts, of course. But but at the end of the day, there still is a very sort of symbiotic, strong relationship. So they make a good return, and uh, they're well embedded with their customers, and they have a very strong moat in that sense. And and and, ga- and the gas business has, has has grown over time. We use every year. We, we as a society, we use a bit more. Why is it particularly exciting today and why is it in my European Change for Better fund, um, which is a SFDR9 fund with an objective to to invest in companies that are basically uh, aligning through improvement and enabling that improvement in a valuation display way. They're aligning themselves with um, uh, Paris and that they're aligning our economy with Paris. So, so why does Elikid fit that bill? And the answer is they've got multiple opportunities, if you think about it, to deepen their footprint in very simple top-down terms, 10, 15 years ago even, the vast bulk of our um, our energy system came from coal and oil uh, with a bit of natural gas, but that was the vast majority of it. We're now talking about replacing, yes, with wind farms and solar, and those are important growth areas potentially, um, the energy from, from those fossil fuels. But we're also talking about using hydrogen for steel production we're talking about using ammonia to power our ships you know uh it could be hydrogen could be ammonia probably be ammonia because uh, ammonia has a much um more suitable uh, boiling point and is much less um, explosive so there's two examples where air liquid has got the opportunity to effectively what they're doing is taking share from the oil and gas market and as they deploy capital their their, their returns um actually increase not decrease and, and that's a very attractive characteristic for a company I was quite interested in um, looking at the fact that um, you don't invest in any energy stocks on either fund. Um, why is this? I mean, Elikid kind of, you could argue, is kind of in that universe, and yet that it, you know, no company within that sector is um, is is there on your fund. So what, why why is that? Yeah, pe- people often look at it and say, well, is that a sustainability decision? And I suppose in some ways it is in in in, in the sense um, of of long of, of the, the pure sense of sustainability, but what it's not is just a blanket exclusion saying, "Well, oh, we don't want to buy energy stocks because you know they're bad for society." 
even in the 2050 net zero uh, IEA scenarios, you still have gas involved. Uh, it's going to be a critical transition fuel. And actually, if you think about all the things we need to do to transition our economies, what we can't do is just say, uh, you know, we can't use steel. We can't use gas. If we if we try and do those things, we're going to uh, not achieve our goals. We, we need to produce steel. We need to produce gas. We need to produce cement. Uh, we need to go on air travel. We just need to do these things much more sustainably. And I think that's the nuance that's been lost a bit in this whole very become very political ESG debate is this is not about saying, no, you mustn't do these things. It's about saying what technologies and what companies are going to win and what companies are going to lose. And and, and in a way, I see it as kind of the next generation of sustainability. I mean, you know, to be slightly provocative, it's, it's doing sustainability properly. With that in mind, why wouldn't like an Iberdrola or an NL feature in this fund? Iberdrola NL would be candidates, as would any sort of utility um, that's that's helping on that transition. The issue we've got at the moment is that they're trying to deploy capital in a super, um, I would say, competitive environment. And a lot of these business models have been built on very low rates for a very long time. I mean, the poster child, obviously, is Allstead, which is just sort of having its, its own blow up. And I remember this from from 10 years ago. I mean, I was the unfortunate investor that had a position in a company called Abengoa. And I've learned my lesson, right? And, and Abengoa eventually went bust. I mean, we did manage to get out of it. But basically, the problem with it was that it made a bunch of assumptions around maintenance costs, around tax credits, around... Uh, the ability to sell on these projects on the market at a very high price, which function of lower rates, and of course it all eventually unwound through the eurozone crisis, and they got they got hit. And it's a bit like history repeating itself, watching it happen to Orsted. Um, So I don't deny that a lot. Now I think Orsted is particularly vulnerable because it's in offshore wind, whereas obviously solar, the economics are pretty good even on an unsubsidized basis. Ibadrol has been doing it for a long time, for obvious reasons. It's Spanish. There's a lot of solar energy in Spain. Um, so I've got no issue with it. But my preferred way of approaching the issue is to say, well, these guys are all going to spend tens of billions of capex. Why don't we go and buy the companies that they're going to spend that money with? So we've invested in a company called Danielli. Now, Danielli, you know, it's on eight, nine times earnings. It's not, it doesn't trade at all like a growth stock. Historically, it hasn't really grown, to be honest. It's a well-run business over the long term. The issue is they've over-invested in R&D. So that's held down returns in the past. But all that R&D has gone into how to produce steel in a cleaner way. So if you want to buy an electric arc furnace and a direct reduction iron, DRI iron production process, um, you can either go to Energeron or, or Midrex. Now, uh, Daniele's technology is, is Energeron. It's a joint venture. But they've basically got all the IP that you need to decarbonize your steel production plant. Uh, today, I saw a, um, a headline from one of my um, portfolio companies called Saltskitter. It's a steel business. And they've just put their last order in for hydrogen electrolyzer, uh, 100 megawatts. So they've now got their supply chain sorted to decarbonize the steel production process in the town of Salzgitter in Germany. That one investment, replacing those four, arc, uh, four blast furnaces with electric arc furnaces and all the associated other vertically integrated technologies is going to reduce Germany's emissions by 1%. Just that one company's investment. And every time a steel business decides to invest in a DRI plant or a, or an or a, uh, electric arc furnace, 
uh, to, to re-engineer their production process, which they have to do and they will do because it costs more now to produce steel in a dirty way than a clean way. Big difference from the last 10, 15 years. Danielli gets an order or they get 40% of the orders roughly. So their order book has gone from one and a half billion to about five billion. It's on eight times earnings. You know, these are the hidden gems that you find all across Europe in, in so many different areas. And my final question is on Virali, I think it's called it's been the well, biggest contributor to your funds outperformance in both in both funds so i just wanted to get your perspective on it's a french glass maker right and they recycle glass quite interested in in what they do yeah the glass bottling business was a very fragmented market for, for many years and um so therefore people didn't make much profit and then you know a bunch of private equity companies uh, of which Varelia was one, consolidated that market. So it was like a relatively stable market overall in Europe. If you dug into it geographically, it was even more concentrated. So if you want a glass bottle in northeast Spain, you have to go to Vidralia. And the glass doesn't travel very far. Sorry, Vidralia is a different company from Varelia, uh, confusingly. Uh, if you want one near Cognac, you go to uh, Varelia. So that's the story effectively, is that they were able to demonstrate over time, a little bit uh, of extra pricing power. We became really positive during the uh, energy crisis in Europe. Why? Well, gas is used for melting glass and uh, melting sand to create glass. And um, the market, the stock market had basically said, well, therefore, all the companies that use it are going to come under severe cost pressure. And you can understand why, right? Because their cost base has gone up. But because, what we identified was because it was such a concentrated market, they were going to be able to pass through this price rise, this cost pressure through a price rise. And what was what what, what the, the the sort of um, the bit that exceeded our expectations was they didn't just say, "Well, I make two euros on each glass bottle or two cents on each glass bottle today, and I want to make two cents tomorrow." No, they said. That glass bottle used to cost one euro and I'd made 20% on it. So I'd make my 20 cents. Now it's costing 1.5 euros. I still want to make 20% margin or 30, it's actually 30, nearly 30% margin. Um, and so therefore I, I'm going to, you know, using the same numbers, I'm going to make 30 cents instead of 20 cents. So there was a, there was a big increase in terms of the, the profit per, per ton of glass. And that meant that Varelia was significantly beat earnings expectations. I think earnings expectations went up or profitability went up by about 50, 70%. We're probably going to see it. That's probably come to an end now. So we've, we've, we've obviously reflecting that in our position on Varelia. Um, from a sustainability perspective, glass is quite an energy intensive product. So it, unlike LVMH or Google or Apple, it really does make a difference um, if we can decarbonize the glass bottling industry. Um, and it's a hard thing. It's quite a hard thing to do because you still got to melt the sand. And Varelli's got the best plan, I would say, of all the glass bottling companies. So we really felt it did meet that hurdle for um, an investment under our, in our kind of Article 9 fund. Since 1929, the Monks Investment Trust's mission has been to help investors grow their wealth. We aim to do this today 
by taking a three-dimensional approach to growth. Cyclical growth, rapid growth, and steady growth. The World Wide Web. Wall Street is in turmoil as stocks crash. The Monks Investment Trust, managed by Bailey Gifford. Capital at risk.